Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Better? All right. Cool. Uh, This morning, we're actually going to look at a a fairly... uh, well-known parable um, that uh, it's, it's, it's pretty familiar. Uh, this is going to be our last week in parables. This is the last parable in the book of Matthew, and so this is going to be our last week in parables, uh, and, and then next week we're going to start on kind of a grand but in-depth view of uh, the story of God. So we're going to go pretty much all throughout uh, uh, scripture and giving us the grand story of God, how these small stories tie together in one big story. Um, but uh, this is a parable. So today we're going to wrap up parables. This is a parable that I have, um, I was reluctant to preach. I don't, it, it's confusing, I think. They're, on the surface, it seems pretty, pretty, uh, I don't know, it's confusing. And I, I don't necessarily, I've heard it preached a lot of times, and I've never quite been comfortable with the way it's been preached. Um, there's a lot of interpretations. There's even, even some variants within various interpretations that make some things interesting. Uh, but um, here is what I want to lead us into this parable with, okay? All right? Our main goal this morning is not to nail down precisely what Jesus is saying, okay? Our main goal this morning really is that we would hear what Jesus wants us to hear in response to this. Does that make sense? Do you understand that distinction there? We're not after being precisely right in what Jesus is saying here as much as we are after a humble heart in response to receiving what Jesus wants us to receive. Okay? Um, So with that, we're going to look this morning. It's the last parable in the book of Matthew, Matthew 25, 14 through 30. Uh, the parable of the talents. Uh, Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. So, um, Matthew uh, is, uh, Jesus is, is at the end of a long uh, time of teaching. He is in Jerusalem at this point. Uh, when he starts off, it says, it will be, he is talking again about the kingdom of God. So, you can, sub- when he says it, He is talking about the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability, and then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had received the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Verse 20, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, and saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents, and here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 22, and he also, the one with two talents more, um, 
Let's see. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you have delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And the master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. And you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. Verse 28, So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given, will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. All right, let me do a quick recap. We've divided up the parables into three sections. The first section that we looked at, the kingdom of God is like a seed, and it's sown. And we, and we looked at Jesus using a whole lot of illustrations to show what the kingdom of God is like, but it's like a seed. It's not like a side that you choose which one you're on. It is a seed. A seed grows in you. It has to work in fertile soil. It has to be accepted. There has to be something taking place. It, a lot of it goes unseen. It's beneath the surface. Uh, other things can grow up around it. Other things can come and snatch it. Other things can, uh, can, can attack it. Other distractions. But the kingdom of God is a slow and steady growth that is at work in us. That the, the, the goal then is to eventually bear fruit. And so Jesus starts with the kingdom of God parables. Well, then what we see in the feeding of the 5,000 is that Jesus feeds the 5,000 and all of these people that are gathered, and these aren't the religious leaders. These are more, uh, this is... The, the, the general crowds of people. Uh, there wasn't necessarily a middle class back then. It was either you had wealth or you didn't. Uh, and this was just the general crowds of people, the masses. And what they see with Jesus when he performs this miracle is they, he perceives, and John tells us, he perceives that they want to make him king. They want an earthly kingdom. This must be the guy that's going to come and overthrow the Roman oppressors and going to establish Israel back as a force on, uh, in this world. And Jesus disappoints them. That is not what I'm here to do. I am not here for your earthly kingdoms, for your earthly agendas. And he says that. And they come back to him on the other side, and they're like, hey, do that bread thing again. Give us more food. And he's like, I am the bread, or the bread I have, you'll never, eat, you'll never go hungry again. And they're like, yeah, that's the bread we want. And he says, it's me. Feast on me. Eat of my flesh which they're like, that's weird, and they leave. If we try to pull Jesus into our earthly agendas, he will disappoint us. And frankly, too often, we will walk away from him in pursuit of our earthly kingdoms and agendas, whether that's personal or corporate. And so he turns then, and he starts telling these parables that are more about outrageous grace. And the parables that he tells next, he'll put a few different characters in there, there's the bad guy that we look on the surface and go, right, that's the bad guy, the tax collector, the Samaritan, 
the prodigal son that wishes his father dead. Those are bad guys. And then he'll put that in, in, he'll juxtapose that, he'll put that in connection with the good guy, the older, upright son, the Pharisee, the religious leader, the pastor, uh, the Levites, the priests. And through the story and the telling of the parable, the bad guy ends up in repentance and humble before God. The bad guy ends up the hero of the story. The good guy ends up the villain. And so we, we read those and we're like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. And the design of those is to kind of mess up the way we think things should go. And then as Jesus enters, so those are the, those are the outrageous grace parables. And then as Jesus enters the kingdom, uh, enters <clears throat> Jerusalem at the end of his ministry, in the last week of his life, he kind of goes back to kingdom parables, but these are more judgment parables. And he tells these parables to basically say, here are the people. Now, I want to give clarification here. Jesus is talking to religious people. He's in Jerusalem. It's where the temple is. So if the last several weeks you're like, why does he keep picking on the religious people? Because I'm following Jesus. Okay? Jesus is directly confronting the religious establishment, the religious people. There's things to say about the other side, and we, we see that. But here Jesus is, is, is confronting the religious leaders, and, and he kind of pulls the gloves off a little bit. There was a vineyard owned by a man who leased it out to tenants, and when the owner came back for the fruit, the tenants beat the servants and killed them and ran them off, and then the son came and they killed him. And then the, the Pharisees go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think he's talking about us. And Jesus goes, now yeah, you're getting it. Now you're getting it. The wedding feast, he sends out to all the religious leaders, all the ones that he knew would come. And, they're like, and the king sends out this great invitation. And they're like, I don't know. Their refusal, their lack of faith, is really their own judgment. They participate in their own judgment. Grace is offered and they go, no, this is ours. We want this. This is our kingdom. And so we get to the final parable in Matthew, um, and this is the plot to kill Jesus. Uh, this, this is the, the plot to kill Jesus has picked up. Uh, the unjust trial is about to begin, and we get to this kingdom. So what is this kingdom, or this parable? What, what is this parable about? It's a good question, isn't it? I, I would love it if we had time to go around and like, what have you heard? Have you heard this parable? What have you heard it taught and how have you heard it taught? I will tell you this, rarely, when I've heard it taught, I've heard lots of various things, rarely have I heard it taught in its context in the story, like where it falls. Like even as I was reading, I was like, oh wow, that's the last one. Usually when I hear this, it's, it's almost like Jesus telling us how, that, how to pick the right financial investments. And, and it's like he's out in the middle of a field somewhere just talking, right? And so Jesus is telling us how to steward properly our money. But it's the last parable in Jerusalem before he's put on trial and crucified. It doesn't fit with what I've normally heard. Is that just me or is that? Yeah. So there's something more, I think. And then there's more context before and after that we'll look at as well. So what we're going to do... Um, I just want to look at some different aspects of this parable, and then we'll give the grand context and, and pray and be done with, with parables, all right? And let this kind of rock us a little bit. 
So some different aspects of this parable that can help us and challenge us. Uh, first, um, this is another illustration of the kingdom of heaven. He goes back in the parable right before this, which is the parable of the ten virgins. He says the kingdom of heaven is like. So when he says it, here he's saying, talking about the kingdom of heaven. Um, he's gone back to that. And what we see is something that we're familiar with. Uh, we have servants who have been giving, given something, and it's not theirs. It's the owner. It, there's an owner. That's a familiar theme that we've seen, right? The vineyard. It's the owner's vineyard, and the tenants who are leasing it out have this thought that, no, 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 it's mine, and that's dangerous. And so what we see here is that's a familiar theme. It wasn't their vineyard. It was somebody else's. These aren't their talents. It's the owner's. It's not their money. It's the owner's. The two sons, all they had was their father's. One wished their father dead. The other failed to appreciate and was basically waiting for their father to die. <laughs> right? But none of it was actually theirs. It was their father's. And they got to particip participate. Mixed in with these parables is also the parable of the rich young ruler, which is ironic. All that he had and owned actually got in the way of him experiencing the kingdom of God. The rich young ruler had a lot. And remember what Jesus said to him? He's like, well, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of God? What did Jesus say to him? Just sell everything you own. Give it to the poor. And he walked away sad because he had a lot. So there, Jesus basically says, be a steward and not an owner. And, and that's it. And he walks away sad because he owned a lot. So um, there's definitely an element of stewardship here. Ownership says this is mine. What I have is mine. Stewardship says all that I have is God's. Whether it's money, whether it's uh, talent, which we'll look at that in a second, whether it's uh, a voice, whether it's an ability, whether it's all that I have is God's. Okay? Sometimes we confuse this politically, and I've heard this explained, and I thought this was very well. Uh, uh, capitalism says all, all that I have is mine. Socialism says all that you have is the systems. God says all that you have is his lest we get caught up in baptizing one or the other. We're stewards. Now, um, under stewardship, we are caretakers. We are accountable to be caretakers for all that we have. What's interesting here is the word here for talent, I, I didn't know this, but the word here for talent uh, in this passage is actually where we will, in English, eventually get our word for, ready? Talent. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? A little word study, but I'm not going to go into that. I, I, I was not a grammar fan. I didn't like science. I didn't like, I didn't like uh, math. I didn't like English. Go to ministry. Um, what, uh, so, but talent in this day, that's not what it meant in this day. Talent in this day is actually a measurement of some kind of metal. So depending on where you were, some kind of of income. So depending on where you were, it could be anywhere from 60 to 90 pounds, and depending on the metal, could, to, could be up to 6,000 days wage per talent. That's a long time. I didn't measure it out. And, and, and they don't know if, if editors went back and made this like more than it was, but really what we see here is five talents is a whole lot of money. 
That's five times 6,000 days wages. You can do the math. Was that 30? 30,000 days wages. Um, uh, so even one talent is significant. Um, so there's a question in this parable. How do we see our stuff? Do we see it as ours? Do we see it as God's? I don't think that that's the only point, but certainly that's a point within this parable, right? Is this, how do we steward what we have? Do we own what we have or do we steward it well? There's also a measure of, of what we do with it and, and how do we invest it, for lack of a better term. Um, it says that each servant is given to them in accordance with their abilities. What does that mean? What abilities are we talking about? Um, that's, that's interesting. Uh, now, remember... This is not an actual story. This is a parable. This is told. This is not an actual event. This is told to make a point. Uh, but does that mean people have different earthly values? Do some people have more value than others? Uh, James warns us about seeking platform, uh, but we can see in Scripture that God definitely uses some people. And God is not necessarily discriminant on how talented these people are, these abilities. Right? If you remember back in, uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, Saul is voted to be king because he has two very high qualifications. You ready? He's tall and he's handsome, so he should be king. It doesn't work out well. Okay? A lesson that we still have not learned. So then David, the lastborn... The smallest, the insignificant, is not voted on by the people, but is anointed by God himself as the next king. So it's interesting. What does it mean that they would have abilities? Maybe this has something to do with spiritual giftedness, right? Paul tells us in Ephesians, some have the gift of evangelism, some have the gift of prophecy, some preaching and teaching. What if... What if it's a measure of grace? What if the one that gets five talents is forgiven in a huge amount? He sees the debt that he has. And so the one that's given five talents is, is forgiven much. And the one who is given one talent doesn't see as great of a need. I don't know what is meant by, the, by abilities, um, but what's interesting is that the reward is the same, regardless of the earthly abilities. Did you notice that? The reward for the faithful servant with five is the same as the reward for the faithful servant with two. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You've been entrusted with a little, which ain't really a little. <laughs> You've been entrusted with this, and now your faithfulness, you'll be entrusted with more. Um, sometimes this parable is used, I feel like, in a very manipulative way uh, to warrant kind of the health and wealth take, right? 
The blessing of God is being a good businessman or woman. It's in doubling your income. Um, or your ministerial influence, or your legacy, or fill in the blank, right? Sometimes we can baptize the Bible under our capitalistic nature and say, uh, really what this is saying is, God blesses those, uh, what's the, God helps those who help themselves, right? Um, what's interesting here is that all of the servants ending, end up, regardless of what they've earned, it all goes back to the master, or it all goes away from them. So regardless of what they've actually earned here, it's never theirs. And there's a joy to give it back to the master, whatever it might be. So I, I'm careful on the, on the, the money-back guarantees here that, that this is a slippery slope uh, where the internal motivation for using this in an improper way uh, could lead us to be more like the rich young ruler. Maybe this is a parable about eschatology, the end of all things, the end of times. How is everything going to go down? Because the master comes back and he's going he's to ask. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. There's just a what if, and certainly it's there, right? There is a day of judgment. What have you done with what you've been given? Um, the distinction here is one of the servants does something different than the other two. Instead of taking the talent to market and earning it, instead of investing it, instead of going and, and putting it to work in the world, he digs a hole in the backyard and he hides it. Now, if somebody gave you a large sum of money and said, I want you to protect this with everything you have, then that's not a bad plan, right? It wasn't uncommon to bury, to, uh, the, the, uh, who did it? It wasn't Joel. Who did the sermon on the, the, field, the treasure buried in the field? It may have been Darden, right? That happens. And, and, and that's not uncommon here. Uh, my grandpa, my mom's dad, um, he passed away when I was in seminary, but he, uh, they were children of the Depression. And they, he first, he, he kept everything. Um, I remember being in his house one time and finding a 15-year-old pack of Mentos, still sealed and ready for use if needed. Um, after, he, after my grandma passed away and he moved out of the house, the aunts and uncles went and they found little stacks of cash in, in books, in drawers, behind the plates. Like they found stashes here and there because that's what you, that was survival. That's what you had to do. You don't put it in the bank. Um, Some later interpretations of this parable actually flip this whole thing and make the last servant the hero and the master the bad guy. Isn't that interesting? Uh, that this is not about the rich, this is more about the rich and the poor, and so the master is just there to exploit and get more money out of his servants, and so uh, the poor servant is actually the hero, the one that's only given one talent. It's an interesting take, really hard to work that into this parable. A lot of conjecture and, like, it's just not there. Especially with what Jesus follows this with, though, uh, I think can help us interpret this more. The master doesn't tell the servants what he wants to do with the talents he's given them. It's probably implied. But it differ the difference seems to me the view of the master by the servants. 
Is he joyful or is he a hard man? Is he good or, or is he demanding? The wicked servant and the master both affirm that the master sows where he did not, he reaps where he didn't sow, and he gathers where he doesn't scatter seed. The master affirms his statement there, but the third servant sees him as a hard man. And what's interesting is, even though he sees him as a hard man, he still doesn't do anything with, with what's been given to him. He still hides it and protects it. So what I want to do now, I'm going to try to do this quickly, is I want to step back and give us the, the context of where this parable is told. Okay? Everybody still good with that? We're good. It's a nice day, but we got plenty of those coming up. Said nobody in St. Louis. Um, <clears throat> Jesus has been preaching and teaching. He's been in the kingdom. He's been uh, in, the, in, in Jerusalem. He's been talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. They're getting more and more mad at him. They're plotting to kill him, and he's talking more about the kingdom of God. But what has happened in the Pharisees and the scribes is that the kingdom of God, uh, to them, has become more of an us versus them. We are the right ones. They are the wrong ones. Uh, we are the, garter, the guardians and the protectors of this kingdom. They are treating it as their own in, in more of a self-protection. And if you want to enter into this kingdom, you must become like us. Not you must encounter the king, but you must become like us, and we stand guard over the door. Who gets in and who doesn't? Um, leadership books. I have a love-hate relationship with leadership books. What frustrates me about so many leadership books I've read is that somebody goes, tells it like, this is the way I've done it, and so obviously it's right because it's worked, so the secret to leadership is for you to be like me. And usually the way I read those is I'm like, I'm not like that, though. I can't, I, I don't, I see all the differences. And in fact, I often feel a huge measure of uh, shame and guilt over not being as good as or as intentional as or as effective as or as productive as or as witty or gifted as fill in the blank. And so I read these leadership books and I'm just like, so, I just decided to not read them. <laughs> Easy way around that, right? <clears throat> in the process of confronting the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus pronounces over them a series of woes. These are the leaders of the day. He pronounces over them a series of woes, Matthew 23. Blind guides, hypocrites, brood of vipers. They, are protect they view themselves as protectors of God's kingdom, but God's kingdom doesn't need their protection. They are the ones that are going in with the fine-tooth comb over every fine doctrine. Did you get this right? Did you obey this law right? Did you do this just right? Did you do this? And yet they are neglecting Jesus' words, not mine, justice and mercy and faithfulness. In our day, the, the, some of the, so, uh, there, there's a section of religious leaders in our day uh, that, that I interact with more um, just out of curiosity. A lot of these are guys that I used to look up to. Um, and, and really what's happening is they have this fine-tuned comb, tooth comb of what the gospel is, what it means. And to say any variant 
is immediately to be cast into the outer darkness. Right? And what they're doing is they're introducing terms that are fear-driven, that they don't know what they mean, and so they introduce them to congregants who don't know what they mean, but they use them as accusations against pastors. Terms like Marxism and terms like critical race theory, which is incredibly uh, uh, nuanced, but they just, it's introduced as a bad word, and immediately when somebody talks about anything, it's, they're doing that, they're liberal, another bad word. And they have no context for what any of these things mean, but they feel very, very, very declared authority to kick you out of the kingdom immediately when you talk about that. And yet, and yet, and yet, do you know what is not evident in any of this teaching? Peace, patience, humility, grace. Let me get the rest of the fruits of the Spirit. I wrote them down because I knew I would, I knew I'd forget them. Um, they're missing all of the, large, the larger things. Love. They've neglected this part, this huge aspect that Jesus says covers a multitude of sins, and they're picking the fine-tooth comb. This is what he says in the woes where they strain the gnat and swallow the camel. And what does that mean? In that day, when you had wine, wine was actually cleaner than water, in that day. But if you had wine, they had to leave it outside to ferment. And if you've ever had a glass of wine and you've left it outside, what happens? Immediately, almost. The gnats and the noceums or whatever, they get in and they're all floating around, right? So the best way to strain these, because they didn't have strainers like we do, so you know what they would do? Sometimes they would use cloth. If they didn't have cloth, they would use their servants. Who would? Yes, They would take in large amounts, and then they would use their teeth as filters and let the wine go through their teeth and would catch the gnats in their teeth, and that's how they strain it. And Jesus says, you take all the care and precaution to do that, and yet you swallow the camel. Camels were very useful animals, but they were disgusting. They were unclean, and the idea of eating a camel was just nonsense, like is gross. Nobody would eat a camel. And it was the unclean of unclean. And in a culture dominated by cleanliness and laws, Jesus is basically saying you take all this precaution to strain gnats, and yet you'll swallow the whole camel. You're missing the big picture. Doctrine is important. Understanding the gospel is important. All of those things are important. But if we've done it as an adversary to actually peace, patience, to, all, to, to the fruits of the Spirit, we've missed. We've missed. I'm going to skip ahead, believe it or not. <laughs> Teachers will stand accountable for what we teach, how we utilize this talent and this responsibility. Uh, Jesus gives this warning to religious leaders um, who feel the need, we, they, we, who feel the need to stand guard over the kingdom of God as if we are the ones that have to defend it, who will fine line everything out of fear and insecurity and yet internally will be filled with either fear or greed or want for power or want for being right. And what Jesus pronounces in the woes is, you've cleaned the outside of the cup, 
but the inside of the cup is filled with greed. It's nasty. You've taken care to present yourselves well, but internally, it's disgusting. So, wrapping this up, we need to be careful that Christianity does not become more about moralism, our kingdom, us versus them, what separates us from them, and in doing so, using doctrines to make certain things that we believe better than certain things that others might, and neglecting the greater things of the kingdom. We need to be careful, people, who don't use labels just to make us feel better and make us look better, to induce fear in the other, and yet, as Paul warns in 1 Corinthians, yet have not love. We're called to be wise, yes. The entrance to this parable is who is the faithful servant? Faithful servant has wisdom, not just indiscriminate on how they invest their talent, and yet lavishly pours out all that they have, generously, joyfully. So this requires wisdom, and so we grow, and we read, and we study, and we learn God's Word, and we learn doctrine, and yet it's also a great freedom. You and I are not the ones who have to protect this kingdom. We don't stand guard. It's not mine. I see over and over again this this defense of the church in the next generation. We've got to fight for it. Guess what? The Holy Spirit fights for it. We we can give correctives, but when we start to feel like we have to take control, that we are the ones doing it, somehow the idea of studying and knowing Scripture and knowing doctrine and love and generosity and gracious and joyful giving, abundance, somehow those have put it, been put at war with each other, and, and they shouldn't be. They should be hand in hand. The more we study, the more generous we ought to be. The more conservative we are theologically, the more radically generous we ought to be socially. I didn't say politically, I said socially. I don't care, politically is a whole other thing. When we understand that this stuff is not ours to protect and defend, it's ours to give generously and joyfully and so into the world. So, as the kingdom of God, we'll finish, we'll wrap up the whole sermon series with this, as the kingdom of God gets sown into your heart, initially there is this great joy and this great love and this passion. I'm going yeah, to give everything. But listen, if you've, ever, if you've ever been in love, if you're married, if you've been married for a long time, you know that it, that doesn't like last. It takes effort to learn how to do this, to learn how to walk in love. And so it takes obedience and it takes walking in faithfulness. And so as the, the kingdom of God is sown into our hearts that we receive and repent and we water it, we nurture it, we study God's word, we're encouraged with one another, we are reminded where we're, where we're off and where we're on and we, we spend time together. We prune as the, as the kingdom of God grows in us, we prune it. If you've ever done gardening, sometimes you've got to cut leaves off so that the better thing can grow. You've got to cut off dead branches. That means we repent. Repentance is not just feeling bad for yourself. It's seeing where we're off and being corrective and having a humble spirit, ready to be, uh, ready to be guided in better ways, that we deeply trust God, that we can see where we are and where we're not, where we're not loving our neighbor. 
where we're cowering in fear of others, where we're not advocating where we should be, where we're more self-protective than generous. Repentance calls us out of that and calls us to trust Jesus all the more. And then, as the seed grows all the way up and actually breaks through the soil, guess what it does? It bears fruit. The two turns to four, the five turns to ten. To whom much grace has been given, much grace should be shown. The more we see how much we need Jesus, we don't bear down then and protect it against everybody else who's got it wrong. The more we joyfully and graciously give out of that, love extravagantly, love lavishly, love scandalously, practice outrageous grace. You, we don't get to determine. Praise God we don't get to determine who's in and who's out. We bear fruit of the goodness of our Savior and King and rejoice in that. So there's a great freedom, follower of Jesus, to be overwhelmed by the kingdom of God at work in us, growing to bear fruit like a seed that was planted in us, that the kingdom of God is not a quiz to be figured out, it grows in humble hearts, it grows in receptive soil, and it works on us, and it works in us, and it takes time. It takes faithful obedience in the same direction. It's long, it's day after day, and then it bears fruit that sows into the world and produces more seed. Cool? All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are not a formula to be figured out, even though so many times I treat you that way. Um, you're a seed that, is, that, that you brought, the, good, the hope of the gospel that you brought is like, the, like a seed sown in fertile soil. The hope you brought is, I am ushering in the kingdom of God. So it's not always about me getting it right, it's about me being humble and continuing to grow. It's me being led by you. I want to speak truthfully but humbly about your kingdom. I want to appeal to others in a manner of graciousness and humility. I want to be willing to be wrong and corrected. I want to not be driven so much by fear that I dehumanize people that I disagree with. I don't want to be so much driven by my own kingdom that I will internally put to death people that I disagree with or people that are in my way. I don't want to think more highly of myself than I ought. May we humbly accept whatever amount that you have given us and that our greatest call is not productivity. Our greatest call is not being smarter than everybody else. Our greatest call is not outdoing our neighbor. Our greatest call is faithfulness, faithful testimony to the goodness of our master. May we, certainly not as just as individuals, but may we as the church, as a people, be faithful servants to produce fivefold, tenfold, a hundredfold. May we, in humility, be able to stand before you and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name and for his glory.
Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.